Exodus chapter 6, verse 28. Now, when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 83 years old, sorry, 80 years old, and Aaron, 83, when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned the wise men and sorcerers, and the, Egypt, uh, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's snap, staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. It's always good to get a sense of where you're going. If you're setting out on a a long journey, I'm sure many of us still check the routes. We used to do that by going to the car and opening up a map and working out where we're going to go. Maybe you wrote down the major junctions and the motorways you were going to go on. And then, of course, we all went on AA Route Planner and we printed out our list of different steps on the way. And then, now, of course, we just get the phones out of our pockets, and we press go, and maybe we don't even check where we're going. But generally speaking, we like to know where we're going. And our passage this week, it's short, chapter 7, verses 8 to 13, is really here to preview where we're going to be going as we work through the next five chapters of the book of Exodus. Because it comes right at the beginning of the section that covers the ten plagues that God sends upon the Egyptians through the book. Now, if you're new to us this week, you've come at at a great week to step into this series in Exodus after the Christmas break, because this story, true story, this first sign that is done before Pharaoh, previews and points forward to the big message of the coming plagues that we're working through over the next few weeks on Sunday mornings as a church family. Now, I guess many of us think, perhaps, that we know the plagues quite well. I challenge you over lunch 
to name them in order. That's a challenge. If you can do that, work through the plagues in order. But as I read them through this week, I was struck afresh by the fact there were details there I'd not seen before. There were things that uh, struck me afresh in, in new ways. And it is a long narrative. But as we begin this journey through it, it's important to ask where we're going. What's the big picture? Why does God send these 10 plagues? And that's why this sign miracle that comes before the 10 plagues is so very helpful because it previews the big messages that we're going to encounter as we work through the next five chapters in Exodus together. We're going to see three key lessons this morning. I haven't got any slides, but three key lessons for us to learn from as we look together at the plagues and as we look at this sign miracle, and they're all relevant to us today. And the first thing that we see in this sign miracle and in the plagues that follow is that we are to obey the Lord whatever the cost. That's the first big message, to obey the Lord whatever the cost. Now, over the last few chapters in Exodus, we've noticed a, a pattern as we've worked through and followed God's dealings with Moses. It's that God comes to Moses and speaks to him, commanding Moses to go and stand before Pharaoh and declare his message to Pharaoh. Sometimes Moses does that. He goes to the people as God commands him. Other times he doesn't do that, but after each time he comes before the Lord, and he comes back with questions, and he comes back with doubts. And one of the key things that God has been doing in these first six chapters of Exodus is shaping Moses as a man. The Lord has been teaching him that he should obey. He's been teaching him to do that by reminding him of his power, by showing him his grace and kindness, and by calling him again to obey him. But what is striking as we come to Exodus chapter 7 is that pattern we have seen again and again and again. It stops, doesn't it? Because Moses is commanded to go before Pharaoh, and he does. Read with me in your Bibles in chapter 7 and verse 8. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, they're on the table on their way in. Do feel free to pick one up as you come into the service um, next week. But as we look at chapter 7 and verse 8, look there at the verse. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded After that previous pattern of God commanding and Moses doubting and questioning, suddenly that pattern ends. And what really stands out starkly here is the simplicity of God commanding, Moses hearing, and him obeying. Now, it's important to remember that obedience for Moses would not have been easy because Moses has been told that Pharaoh is not going to listen to him. We read in chapter 7 and and verse 4, he will not listen to you. And so Moses is going to have to go and stand before Pharaoh and again and again bring that message, let my people go. Plagues will come upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He will do those great signs, but Pharaoh will not listen. And Moses will do that again and again and again and again. And again, 
I don't know about you, but when you're trying to communicate something to someone (laughs) and it feels like they're not listening to you, (laughs) there's a point where you run out of energy doing it, isn't there? You don't want to keep doing it, especially if they won't listen to you. But Moses keeps going in obedience, and Moses' obedience came with cost, but he kept going. And, and Moses' obedient spirit that he begins to show here is contrasted, and we'll see this as we work through, and we see it in our passage, with Pharaoh's ongoing rebellion. Because through each of those plagues, God will come through Moses, and the message will be given again and again. It won't change. The Lord will say, let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. The message returns again and again. But Pharaoh's responses will progress from outright refusal to negotiated obedience. Number of times he will say, well, I'll bargain with the Lord's commands here. I'll offer partial obedience. Why don't you just offer the sacrifices here in Egypt? And God through Moses will say no. I say, well, well, why don't you just uh, go to sacrifice but leave the livestock? And God through Moses will say no. And he says, well, why don't just the men go, leave the women and children? They can go and sacrifice. And, and God through Moses will say no. Because the Lord will not compromise his commandment to Pharaoh. And all of this teaches us in Moses' obedience and Pharaoh's ongoing disobedience is that God's commands must be obeyed. Too often we focus upon how hard that obedience can be, and it will come with costs. But we can forget that what matters most is that we do obey. I wonder if you're a Christian this morning, where is it in your life that you need to remember that obedience matters even when it is costly? Young people, perhaps you need to remember that in the area of relationships. Perhaps you're seeing at school all your friends pairing off And the pressure is building upon you to form relationships with those who don't know the Lord. And you can feel the cost starting to build. You feel the the odd one out. You wonder, am I going to be lonely? You wonder, will I ever find a spouse? The pressure and the cost of obedience seem to be building. Obedience is always costly. But obedience is always right. And it is so important that we settle on this. That if we know the Lord as our saviour... We will obey him, whatever the costs. Because here's the thing, as life goes on, it doesn't get easier. The challenges keep coming and the costs get bigger. There is a growing cost to obedience in our day where we have to obey God's commands and not the fluid and flexible moral views of our day. And there's great pressure, isn't there, to go with the crowd To follow others in virtue signaling when we're following the latest moral outrage in the office or in social media. And it's not what God's commands, it's something else that's contrary to God's commands. And the pressure comes when we wear the lanyard, when we support the cause that we know isn't right. There will be costs. People will notice that we won't compromise And we must remember, it is hard to swim against the tide. But it is right to swim against the tide when the tide is going in the wrong direction towards danger. So do not be like Pharaoh. Do not refuse. Do not negotiate. 
Do not offer a temporary obedience. Settle in your mind now and settle in your mind through your life that however costly, obedience is always right. And it's right, friends, because if you're a Christian, God has saved you in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has rescued you. He has brought you from sin. He has brought you into everlasting life in the Lord Jesus. That's what God has been showing to Moses, his salvation. And he keeps on saying to Moses, stop looking at the problem, Moses, and the costs. Keep looking at me and remember who I am, what I have done, and I will do. Look to the Lord, remember what he has done, and obey because it is right, whatever the cost. That's the first big lesson that we see here and working out to the plagues. But the second big lesson is linked to that because in light of that, we are to know that I am the Lord. The, the big message of this sign and all the 10 plagues that follows is that we need to know that the Lord is the Lord God. That's second point. Now, a common misunderstanding of the plagues is that God is trying to wear Pharaoh down so that he will release the Israelites. Now, now if you look at the 10 plagues, you'll notice there is an intensification as it goes through. They go from being inconvenient to being uncomfortable, to bringing loss upon the Egyptians, to bringing suffering upon the Egyptians, and then finally in the 10th with death. But it is not, we must not think that God is trying one thing to see if that will persuade Pharaoh, and that doesn't work, and so he tries something else, and that doesn't work, and so he tries something else, and that doesn't work, and so he tries something else. This is not a case of a, a judge who has an ever-increasing set of sentencing guidelines to bring for a criminal who keeps on offending. It's not a case of a business negotiation where you're trying to, to extend it out and wear someone down. That is not what is going on. We know that because... God told Moses Pharaoh wouldn't listen. And we also know that because there is a clear pattern and structure to the plagues. They come in groups of three. So the first three plagues affect the water and the land. The plagues four to six affect flesh, animal and human. Plagues seven to nine affect the sky. And then plagues ten sits apart as it brings death to the firstborn. They come in threes in terms of who initiates them, starts them, we might say, because in the first three, it's Aaron who starts them. In the middle three, it's God who starts them. And in the final three, it's Moses that starts them. And in the tenth, sits apart. And also, as we look at each of those sets of three, there is a pattern within them where the first of the three, Moses appears before Pharaoh in the morning. In the second of the three, Moses goes and appears before Pharaoh. And in the third of the three, there is no warning. The plague just comes. So it's a very intentional and deliberate pattern that is showing us they are planned, they are deliberate, they are progressive. So the purpose is not to bend Pharaoh's will, but rather to teach us that the Lord God is the Lord. And that's the message of this sign miracle too. If we look down at verses uh, 10 through to 13 as it's described for us. Aaron appears before Pharaoh. He throws his staff down. His staff becomes a snake. Pharaoh calls in his own wise men, sorcerers and magicians. And then by their secret arts, they throw down their staffs. They become snakes. And then, and here's a crucial bit. 
Aaron's staff swallows up all the staffs that have been created by the magicians, the sorcerers, and the wise men of Pharaoh. Now, what's going on here? Is Aaron's staff really becoming a snake? Are the magician's staffs really becoming snakes? Is it a trick? Well, as we look at Aaron's staff, it is really clear this is a supernatural miracle. It's really happening because the text tells us he threw down his staff, end of verse 10, and it became a snake. Not as a snake, it became a snake. So this is not a clever trick. This is a supernatural miracle. When it comes to the wise men and the sorcerers, it's unclear as to what is happening because we're told their staffs became snakes by their secret arts. So it could have been that they used a trick that apparently was, was known in Egypt, that you could paralyze a cobra by pressing a nerve on its neck, and maybe they're at a distance, and they've done that, and so they hold this paralyzed cobra, they throw it to the ground, and of course it's released, and then it slithers around, the snake does. Maybe it's a sleight of hand switch by the magicians, that's their secret art, or maybe this is being done by real evil power. I think all of those three are possibilities. But what is most important is that the many snakes of the wise men and sorcerers are swallowed up by Aaron's single snake. That's the big lesson. Because it shows us God's authority and power is unrivaled and it's shown in action. If you've been with us as we've been working through the book of Exodus thus far, you will know that Moses, sorry, the Mo- Moses has come before Pharaoh in the past and there's been a confrontation between the Lord and Pharaoh, but that confrontation has been verbal to this point. It's been a bit like, you know, when boxers are about to go into a boxing match and about a week before they have a press, what they call it, a, a weighing in, that's what they call it, don't they? They weigh in. But it's not about weighing in. It's not really interested in the weights. What you're interested in is, is the verbal sparring that's going to happen before the physical fight. And a little bit of what's been happening has been a verbal sparring between the Lord and Pharaoh. And now the question is, who is going to come out victorious when words become actions? And the sign's really clear. The sign is incredibly clear. Pharaoh comes up short, but God shows his power. This sign shows that God is greater than Pharaoh. Now, Seems there is a significance to the snake here, because if you jump in your Bibles to Ezekiel, keep your hand in Exodus chapter 7, and jump to Ezekiel 29 and verse 3, we read a reference to Pharaoh in a prophecy against Egypt. Ezekiel 29 verse 3, second half of the verse, we read, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, you great monster lying among your streams. You say, the Nile belongs to me, I made it for myself. Now, That word there, you great monster, is the same word in Exodus 7 for snake. And what we also know is that Pharaoh's ceremonial headdress was in the form of a snake. Because King Tutankhamun's coffin had a headdress in that very form of a snake. So if the snakes symbolize power, then what are we seeing? We're seeing that Aaron's snake, which symbolizes God's power, is swallowing up the magician snakes, which symbolize Pharaoh's power. So God's power is being shown. 
This sign declares that God's power is greater than the power of Pharaoh. But also, we see that pattern of the sign where, where God is shown to be the Lord also being worked out in the plagues. Because the plagues teach exactly the same thing, that this that the Lord God is the Lord, that he is the Lord. And that this is a repeated reference as we work through the plagues. So if you have a Bible, if you don't, just listen along. In chapter 7 and verse 5, we read this. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. That's chapter 7, verse 5. And then if you drop down to 7 and verse 17, we read this. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that... I am the Lord. And then we jump down again to chapter 8 and verse 10. We read, Tomorrow, Pharaoh says, Moses replied, It will be as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And then chapter 9 and verse 14, we read, Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. So there's this repeated message that God's power is greater than other powers. Now, isn't it interesting that in this sign of the snakes and in the first two plagues, the magicians can copy what happens. But even as they do so, they mimic what's going on in lesser ways. They create weaker snakes They can only create, they cannot remove the things that God makes through Moses. And that reminds us that lesser powers are always trying to mimic God's power, aren't they? Satan is always doing this. And if the magicians are performing real miracles like Moses, then with what power are they doing it? The power of Satan. But their power is limited because Satan's power is limited. And so, if you're a Christian today, this reminds us that we should not fear Satan. We should be on our guard against him. He has power. He can deceive. But his powers are limited. The Lord God is greater than him. And not only is God's power greater than other powers, God's power overcomes other powers. Striking the language there in verse Eight, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Has that sense of greater, doesn't it? Overcoming. And we see this through the plagues as well, that, that the Egyptians worshipped the Nile. They even had a god of the Nile. And, and they did so because they, they saw the Nile was, was so important to them. It brought water. It, through the water, brought them food because through the flooding, it brought Um, irrigation to their fields. It meant that they didn't need rain for their crops to grow. They just needed the Nile to flood. And so it was not without good reason that Egypt was called the breadbasket of the ancient worlds. So the Nile is incredibly significant. But in each of the plagues, we see that God overcomes everything the Egyptians thought had power. So let's think about it. What does he do? All of those things the Egyptians could have had confidence in and trusted in, God overcomes and shows his authority over them. He curses their water and their food supply. He fills their land with irritating frogs and gnats and flies. 
He, he kills their livestock. He curses their bodies by sending boils on their skin. He rains down hail and sends locusts to destroy their crops. He sends darkness, removing the light of the sun. And then in that tenth plague, he kills their firstborn sons in whom they hoped for their future. In trusting in those other things and having confidence in all those other things, the Egyptians were committing the very sin that Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 1 and verse 26, where we read these words. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. And so, friends, through each of these plagues, God is systematically removing those other sources of confidence. And there are times when God humbles us by breaking down our sources of confidence that we might serve him and serve him alone. Some idols are not statues that can be thrown off their pedestal and smashed on the ground. But the Lord will topple them nonetheless. We see that when Israel asked for a king. Later, as we work through the Bible, we find that that Israel asked God for a king like the nations in whom they could trust, a source of confidence. And what does God do? God gives them a king, but he shows them what kind of king they're going to have. He shows them the weakness of the king. And so brings about the ruin, in that sense, through the weakness of the king. And, and God may do the same things in our lives at times. If we trust in riches, the Lord might take them away so that we don't trust in them, but him alone. If we trust in our health, the Lord might lay us low through illness so that we don't trust in our health but we trust in him alone. One of the most important messages of these plagues is to not trust in anything else, but instead know that the Lord is God. Now just hear that word. Instead, know that the Lord is God. Don't just acknowledge. Bow. Receive him. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn away. As we saw in Joshua 24 last week, throw away your idols. And instead know that the Lord alone is God. Trust him. Know that I am the Lord. The second big message of this sign in the plagues. We've seen obey the Lord, whatever the cost. We have seen, know that I am the Lord, the second point. Now, thirdly, in light of that call to trust and serve God, we come to the third big lesson, and it's this. Shudder at the foolishness of human rebellion. Shudder at the foolishness of human rebellion. Now here, I'm not going to get into the question of God's sovereignty over Pharaoh's heart. If you've got questions about that, I would encourage you to go on our website and listen to James's sermon just before Christmas talking about that very issue. 
My point here, and I do think God wants us to see this in this text and in all the ones that follow in the plagues, is this. That we should rightly shudder at how Pharaoh continues to rebel even though he sees overwhelming evidence of God's power. In the sign of the staffs that we've just worked through, there is no debate as to who really has power, is there? It's absolutely obvious. They can all see it. Pharaoh can see it as well. But yet, look at the emphasis of verse 13. Look down at how stark it is. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. End of verse 12. Yet, Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. So Pharaoh's had this front row seat to experience and, and see the power of God. And yet, he continues in rebellion. He will not believe and he will not obey. And the pattern continues through the plagues. As you, as you work through, you find that the magicians see God's power. They recognize it is God who sends the gnats and they say, this is the finger of God. Chapter 8, verse 19. They see the power of God. They recognize the power of God. They get it. Pharaoh doesn't. The, the Pharaoh's officials see it. They, some of them listen to the warnings about the hail that's going to come. And they bring their slaves and their livestock inside before the storm. That's in chapter 9 and verse 20. And the great irony is that everyone around him sees it, sees God's power, and sees it is foolish to rebel against the Lord, but Pharaoh doesn't. Now, what does that teach us? It teaches us this, that Pharaoh's big problem was not a lack of evidence as to the power of God. It was his heart. How often is it that people say, if only God would show me something to prove that he was really God, then I would believe. Friends, when I hear that, I want to say, can we just reason together honestly for a moment? Because I've been where you are, and I have. I've known that God is real, that God's word is true, and yet I have lived in rebellion because I wanted to continue in my sin. I loved it, just like you do, and that is why you don't believe. Friends, deep down, unbelief is not an evidence problem. It's a heart problem. We don't want it to be true. You know, after the, the hail has come down upon Egypt and the locusts are threatened to follow, Pharaoh's officials come before Pharaoh and they beg him to listen to what God is saying and to let the people go. They've seen it. They know that rebellion is foolish. They shouldn't continue it. And yet Pharaoh continues to rebel. And friends, isn't it that many do the same today? Some dispute the evidence, but deep down, they know it's true. Others dispute the possibility of there being universal truth. 
And instead, they, they speak of subjective truth. How often do we hear, my truth is what needs to be said? That's what really matters. We reject subjective truth, but actually deep down we all really believe in objective truth. We need a world of objective truth because if we didn't, we would not, we would not be able to walk over a bridge or drive in a car because all of those have been designed on the basis of objective truth like laws of gravity, moments, and thermodynamics. We believe in objective truth when we get to those. No one believes in subjective truth when it comes to cancer and heart surgery. We're suddenly convinced, and rightly so, that the world has objective truths in it. We want, because we want to believe that one surgery is going to be effective versus another. None of us believe in subjective truth at those moments. We just deny it when it suits us. And whatever the basis of our denial, however we justify our sin, the plagues are here to show us that rebellion is foolish against the Lord God. And for that reason, we should shudder as we see how Pharaoh responds. Because the great warning of the plagues is that God will not be mocked. Pharaoh's rebellious heart thinks that he can mock God and get away with it. But God will not be mocked. And all of the plagues point forward to a coming day when God will judge, not just Egypt, but God's word declares to us, he will judge the whole world. As we work through the plagues, we will find many echoes of the book of Revelation, particularly chapter 16, where the plagues of Egypt are not just poured out in Egypt, they're poured out upon the whole world. And so each of these plagues is here to remind us that we need to repent before judgment. They are a warning to every evil dictator who commits great sin that God will not be mocked. They're a warning to every clever thinker who writes books denying God's existence and calling it delusion and worse that God will not be mocked. And they are a warning to every person who rebels against God in their heart. Friends, they're a warning to me and they're a warning to you. God will not be mocked. And so what should we do? What should we do? We should repent and believe. We should marvel that the God of heaven in his grace and mercy has made it possible for people to come before him in worship. For people to know forgiveness and eternal life because Christ has come. We should look to Jesus Christ by faith and say, what a saviour. That the God who does these plagues and more in judgment is the God who has made a way for sinners to be reconciled eternally and to not face what our sins deserve in judgment, but to know God's acceptance and forgiveness. And friends, one final thing, as we come to the Lord's Supper and as we think of these plagues, these plagues give us an insight into what our Lord Jesus went through on the cross for those who believe. Because if they point forward to the judgment, and they do, they show us more 
of what our Savior suffered for us. Because on the cross, Jesus took our sin and he bore our judgment. And in the space of just a few hours, the eternity of judgment that we would face if we believe in Jesus Christ was born by him. That was what he went for you, Christian. He went through for you, Christian. He endured that and more that you might know God. And so we get more of an insight into what our Savior went through. And so we look to him again by faith. We believe in what he did on the cross. And we come and we bow in worship and in wonder and in praise. Our closing hymn, Oh, Love Divine, What Have You Done? We're just going to put it on the screens. I'm going to read it. Because in this hymn, Charles Wesley helps us to reflect upon the enormity of what Jesus faced for us on the cross and the wonder of forgiveness in his name. And he calls us to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Love divine, what have you done? The immortal God has died for me. The Father's co-eternal Son bore all my sins upon the tree. The immortal God for me has died. My Lord, my love is crucified. Look on him, all you passing by. The wounded prince of life and peace. Come sinners, see your maker die and say, Was ever grief like this? Come, feel with me the blood applied. My Lord, my love is crucified. Is crucified for me, for you, to bring us rebels back to God. Believe, believe the record's true. Our lives are brought, bought with Jesus' blood. Part of our sin flows from his side. My Lord my love is crucified. Then let us sit beneath his cross and gladly catch the healing stream. For him, account all things but loss and give up all our hearts to him. Of nothing think or speak beside. My Lord, my love is crucified.